This is the Fuzzy Logic Science Show on Taboo Double X. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. The intro music brings us into the Fuzzy Logic Science Show, your science on a Sunday. And my name is Rod, and special cosmonaut on this show this morning from the Canberra Times. My listen to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show, your science on a Sunday. And my name is Rod, and special cosmonaut on this show this morning from the Canberra Times. My old pal Nisa Skilton. Oh, hello. I wouldn't call myself a cosmonaut <laughs> at all. Oh, we're going to be cosmonauts today. Now, you know when you get a deck of cards, you throw them on the table, you randomise them, and then you use this arcane set of rules to order them in some way. Now, for some reason, we humans like turning order into chaos, or chaos back into order. Now, I'm not sure whether our guest is an, uh, an agent of chaos or of order, but I'd like to welcome to the show Dr. Charlie Lineweaver. Thank you, Rod. Are you an agent of order or chaos, you think? Well, I'm much like a refrigerator. I keep things cool inside at the expense of the waste heat that I expel. <laughs> uh, we're going to be talking about um, entropy later in the show. Now, um, I want to kind of first get you to tell us a little bit about yourself, Charlie, because there's a whole list of descriptors to kind of say what you do, and I know that you're involved in so many, you've got your fingers in so many different pies of um, things in space. So what, how, what were kind of some of the descriptors of, of what you do? Well, uh, the, I guess the short version is that I'm an associate professor at the Australian National University. I'm, I have a joint appointment in the Research School of Earth Sciences and the Research School of Astronomy and Astrophysics. I guess my fields of research are cosmology, cosmobiology, or astrobiology, uh, and uh, planetology, uh, basically analyzing the latest data on exoplanets. Those are planets orbiting other stars. So how would your kind of average day go when you get into the office? What do you do? Well, first I get there, I check email for four hours and answer. <laughs> <laughs> and the great questions from journalists um, well, from around I, the world. What, yeah, that's right. What I do, <laughs> I do, I read papers and I write papers, essentially. I uh, try to find important questions and try to use the latest data to answer those questions. It must be a pretty full-on workload. What time kind of would your day run from into? Well, it's not that I get up early. I usually go to bed later. I, I, I guess it's, it's uh, I, mean, I guess I'm an amateur as well as a professional in the sense that I like to do it in the evenings and the weekends as well. So kind of work never stops, but it is flexible work hours. Oh, nice. Now, we've got this day in science. We've got some nice spacey things for you, especially, Charlie. I hope you enjoy them. We um, This weekend, uh, we had the first primate in space. The US launched Ham, who was a four-year-old male chimpanzee on the Mercury Redstone 2 rocket. And during this 16.5-minute suborbital, suborbital flight, Ham experienced seven minutes of weightlessness, reached an altitude of 108 miles and a speed of 13,000 miles per hour. And I'm sorry, I can't change that to kilometres an hour for you in my head. Was that in 1958 or something? Or 1961. 61. 61, oh. a few years later. And it was uh, almost, oh, it was 69 when they had the first man on the moon, so a little bit before then. And I remember Ham was actually wired to um, medical sensors to monitor his vital signs, and he had to perform simple tasks while he was up there. And they, I feel sorry for poor Ham because he was trained, so if he got these tasks wrong, he was given an electric shock. But while he was up there, there went something wrong with all the systems, and it kept shocking him, even though he got the answer right. So a little factory worker up there in yeah, space. Yeah, I know. He got frustrated, but he, when he got back home, he actually was able to come back home safely he got a banana as a reward <laughs> uh, now th this this bloke didn't quite go into space but uh he was uh his name was andre jacques Gennarin, i think that's how you pronounce it and he died in 1823 a french aeronaut and he was the first person to parachute regularly and successfully so he perfected the parachute and made jumps from greater altitudes than had been possible before and can you imagine doing the first jump with a parachute, like I'm just going to leap off this tall thing and hope like hell it, I, it thing opens and works properly. 
So he perfected the parachute and made jumps from, uh, yeah. And on uh, the 22nd of October in 1797, so it goes back a fair way, at age 28, he made his first job, uh, jump at the Parc Monceau, pardon my French, in Paris. And he dropped from a hot air balloon at 3,000 feet. And his parachute with 36 ribs and lines, so it wasn't the soft fabric ones they use today, uh, was semi-rigid looking something like an umbrella and the descent was successful except that it shook backward and forth so violently while falling and the physicist Lalande who attended the event suggested improving airflow with a small opening at the top so having survived you, you would have thought you know, pretty risky stuff uh, he died at age 41 he was working on balloon equipment and a beam fell down and knocked him on the head oh. Which reminds me of Mike Halewood, world-class motorcycle champion for 10 years running, uh, even came back and won the world title again and then died in a mini-minor accident. So, now, um, Charlie, you just had this paper released on entropy, and it's a pretty complicated topic. Can you just kick off, perhaps, by telling us what exactly is entropy? Is it just something more than order and chaos, as I was talking about in my introduction? Well, um... When you study thermodynamics, you learn that energy is conserved. So you can't destroy it. It can't go away. It turns from one form into another, from kinetic to potential. For example, in a pendulum, when a pendulum goes back and forth, when it's at the highest point, all of its energy is potential energy. When it's at the lowest point, all of its energy is kinetic. Then it uses that kinetic energy to climb up this potential well, and then all of its energy becomes potential again. So it goes back and forth and back and forth. So in the absence of friction... Energy, well, <laughs> it will keep on going forever in the absence of friction. But there is something called friction, the dissipation. And this is when the second law comes in. And that is that the friction produces molecules that go all around. And they, if you listen to a pendulum, you could hear the sound from it. And uh, so the energy gradually gets dissipated. Now, you can ask, after an hour, the pendulum is sitting at the bottom doing nothing. And where's all the energy gone? It has gone into the vibrations of the molecules in the room. And so the energy has somehow dissipated or dispersed or been more distributed among, well, the fancy word is, larger number of degrees of freedom. So that's one way you can understand that that energy has been, it's the same amount of energy as there, but it's been converted into a distributed form of energy, waste energy, that you can no longer use. So it's not concentrated anymore in the pendulum, it's now that's gone off it's, somewhere else. That's exactly like the words. You just said words, you vibrated, you had compressions and rarefactions of the sound, and then I heard it, and then, then it goes out into a wider space, and then finally just turns into waste heat. So the energy that you use from your wheat bix to make your voice cords go, got turned into waste heat. So the energy is still there, it's conserved, but the entropy has increased. And the second law of thermodynamics says that the entropy of a closed system, or the universe, uh, is, stays the same or increases. So there's now, no way to make it smaller. There's, there's no, no way, way to, to make it smaller on a large scale. For example, many creationists and other people say that life violates the second law of thermodynamics. And they say, look, life is getting more ordered as time goes by. I'm a very ordered system. You're a very ordered system. That's low entropy. So don't we violate the second law of thermodynamics? Well, the answer is no, because if you put a human being in a box and let them sit there, they will die and their, lo their low order will quickly become larger. The, so the clue is that we are are able to produce low entropy, much like a refrigerator is able to produce low entropy or cold, by exporting more heat. So to prove this principle, you, on a hot day, try to cool your room with a refrigerator. You open the door, but make sure the exhaust that's coming out of the back, the heat that's coming out of the back, also stays in the room. And the answer will be that you will not be able to cool your room with a refrigerator because the waste heat, the heat produced, the, the high entropy produced by the refrigerator, exceeds the low entropy inside the refrigerator. So is it now harder to make for us to make use of the energy once it's dispersed like this? You can't use energy once it's dispersed. Uh, for example, if you have a cup of coffee and you have it, well... Um, one, another example. You probably drove here in a car, maybe? A bicycle? Okay, bicycle. So let's see. 
you, when you were riding your bicycle, you're, you moved your muscles and your muscles got hot and then you, you, the heat just went off from your body, right? Into an environment that was cooler than your body. If the environment gets hotter, as hot as your body or even hotter, then it becomes very, very hard for your muscles to do that. Um, if you take the uh, exhaust pipe of a car, well, here's one way to measure the efficiency of a car. You take the, uh, you measure the temperature of the exhaust pipe. Now, that temperature has to be less than the temperature of the internal combustion engine, and it has to be more than the temperature of the outside. So, uh, mm, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> well, we're taking energy out of the fuel and distributing it to the atmosphere. Well, the thing is, you can only distribute it if it is a lower temperature. It's like a coffee cup. The coffee cup, if you put it on the table, if it's hot, it can distribute that energy around, and then after a while, it's at equilibrium. That's the maximum entropy situation. But if the coffee cup is 100 degrees and the room is 100 degrees, it won't cool down, right? So if my engine's running at, say, 500 degrees C, mm-hmm. uh, the engine wouldn't work. I mean, if, if the ambient temperature was 500 C... That's right. And, and the Your engine temperature would not was- work at all. And the whole, everything on Earth is powered by the difference in temperature between the surface of the sun, which is 6,000 degrees Kelvin, and the surface of the Earth, which is about 300 degrees Kelvin. If there were no temperature difference between the surface of the sun and the surface of the Earth, there would be no life here. Is there any way to recycle it, say, in the reverse air conditioner to capture the energy, to capture the heat, and then put it back into the system and recycle it? Well, no, no, there isn't. Uh, think of a pool table. When you have a, a billiard ball, you're playing billiards, and you, ha- you go boom, you hit your stick and you hit it. All of the kinetic energy is in that one ball. And then it hits those ten in the triangular form at the other end of the table. Once it does that the kinetic energy, boom, immediately gets distributed among the kinetic energies of 10 balls. And you just ask the question, is it possible for to take those 10 balls and then put it, boom, into one ball coming back at, at a high speed? And the answer is no. Uh, it's statistically so unlikely that I say no. On the other hand, it's statistically unlikely. So there is a tiny, 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 tiny chance that all of those balls will come together in the same form and then hit each other into it and make a triangle and then one ball comes shooting off. That's possible, but so unlikely that uh, we I say no. But I, to be careful, I need to say it's a statistical <laughs> law. It's not one that says you can't violate the second law of thermodynamics. Yes, you can, but it's only very, very, very unlikely. So it's a probability law. So, Charlie, was I sort of in the right direction when I was talking about order and chaos? So last night, I arranged all my shoes in a neat little row and I put all my socks in the drawer, my underpants in the drawer and all that. So I've brought some order into my room. Have I increased or decreased the entropy of my room by doing that? Well, first of all, let's ask a different question. Have you increased or decreased the entropy of the universe? That's clear. You've increased the entropy of the universe. Although you've decreased the entropy of your sock drawer, you've put, in doing that, you've expended a lot of work and you've put out a lot of heat. And so when we add up all that heat to, to the amount of order, the low entropy in your sock drawer to the high entropy that you've used in the work, that the, the entropy that has been produced while you worked, add it all together, the total is larger entropy. But you asked the question about your sock drawer. Yes, you have lowered the entropy of your sock drawer. But only in a very local sense. That's right. Within the sock drawer. That's right. (laughs) So life forms are like that too. Life forms are low. You and I are both low. We're a very well-organized set of chemical reactions that do all kinds of marvelous things. Um, But when you add up all the waste heat, you take all of our CO2 that we give out through our mouths and all the pee and urine and the poop and add it all together and say, okay, what's the total? Then the total is we are increasing the entropy of the universe as all life forms do. Now, I, I did read your, your paper last night, and um, can you tell us whether entropy is something you can measure directly or is it, is it a mathematical munge of a whole lot of things? How, how, do you, how would you say entropy was X or Y value, or can you not even say that? Well, about 150 years ago, people were asking the same questions about energy. So what is energy? Is it a is it a munge of things? I don't know what munge means, by the way. Anyway, is it a combination, of, a weird combination, a dog's breakfast of things? And it was indeed. You had kinetic energy and you had potential energy and you had heat energy and all these things. Finally, somebody realized, you know, it's all energy. It has different forms, but they had to convert it from one to the other. And uh, entropy is a little bit like that. It hasn't yet been quantified in a way that is fully, it's not done yet. And one glaring example, of, well, one example of what I mean is that I have a pen here, and I'm going to drop it. I just dropped it on my book. Um, and 
it had potential gravitational potential energy, and then it turned into uh, sound waves when it hit the bottom. But the collapse of things, gravitational collapse of things, and the, the relationship of that to entropy is still not understood. Um, if I take two bodies and I have them falling together, and I ask a physicist, well, how is the entropy? Is it increased or decreased? And we don't have a formula for that yet. And that's one of the things I'm working on. So it's not a complete subject. As a matter of fact, if you look at a thermodynamics textbook and look under the, in the index for gravity, you won't find it because the effect of gravity on entropy is, is pretty unknown and it's poorly researched and it's a topic that I'm interested in. And so the universe as a whole, it's heading towards a state of greater entropy, right? Everything is yes. headed, every system that's closed is heading towards larger entropy. This room, this radio station, Canberra, the world, the sun, everything. So what, what was the gist of, of your paper then? Can you uh, put it into uh, terms that we can all understand? Right. Well, we, what we're trying to do as best we can is to calculate, what we did do was calculate the entropy of the universe. A simple way to understand is how much waste heat is there? How much of concentrated energy, like in hydrogen, um, or in gravitationally separated objects, how much of that concentrated energy has been turned into waste heat? And we did that calculation, and we found that it was larger by a factor of about 30 than previous calculations. So in simple terms, what's, what's the calculation doing? The calculation is converting sources of... Well, let's take, uh, let's take this room. This room right here is filled with light. Okay, there are, and it, let's just call it for simplicity a black body spectrum because that's what the universe is filled with light. It's called cosmic microwave background, and you take the temperature of the light, and we have a formula in thermodynamics that we learn in university that is you. I think it's the cube of the that you take the temperature of this black body radiation and cube it, and then times it times Boltzmann's constant cubed, and that's how you convert temperature to. Um, that's how you convert. Uh, temperature to entropy. As a matter of fact, Boltzmann, Ludwig Boltzmann is the guy who came up with this number K. It's a constant, and those are the units of entropy. Uh, joules per Kelvin, is the, that's the units of entropy. So that means if you take joules, any, uh, any energy, and then divide it by the temperature, then you have the, the entropy of that. And that. they're completely um, related to black holes as well, well aren't they? they? I read a nice description. It's the entropy of supermassive black holes that dominate right. the entropy well, of the universe. What I poorly described just now was the relationship between a radiation field and entropy. Uh, now you're asking about black holes and entropy. What, another way to understand entropy is um, how many possibilities are there for distributing the energy? Um, or, let's see, how can I say this? Black holes have three properties. They have a spin, they have a mass, and a charge. Three properties. Now, you can make black holes out of people, or air, or photons, or chairs, or plants, or anything with energy. So, if you take, if you take a whole bunch of chairs, you can make a black hole, and you take a whole bunch of books and you make a black hole. Same mass and they have the same charge, but but all of the information about one being made of chairs and one being made of books is completely lost. When you lose information, that increases the entropy of the universe. Uh, so, uh, for example, when that ball, that one cue ball hit, there was a lot of energy and you knew where exactly where it was. Phew. But when it hit the 10, phew, it got distributed all over the place and it was much harder to keep track of. Well, the same thing now. When I'm talking, I'm vibrating the air and you can hear these pulses of vibrations that you're listening to and understanding. But once they go further away, you know what? It's just become static. It becomes uh, energy that is so distributed that there's no more pattern left. And so you lose information. So black holes are a way of losing information because you only have three pieces of information, mass, spin, and charge, even though you could put make a one uh, black hole out of Bible and one black hole out of the origin of species. There would be the same mass, charge, and spin, and so you couldn't tell the, the, the differences. Okay, so you found out that um, by finding out that the universe's entropy is larger, 30 times larger than what we expected, then the end of the universe is closer than we expected. How are those things related? Right. Well, as I said, the entropy of the universe is increasing. What we'd like to know is how much 
how long will that continue? It's a little like the problem of you have a coffee cup and you put it's hot coffee and you have it on your desk and you'd like, well, it's hot, it's cooling down. When will it come to equilibrium? When will the coffee cup be the same temperature as the environment? When will the, temp when will the stars burn out and everything collapse? Or when will it be distributed in photons everywhere? And so we have to define what the maximum state of entropy is in the universe. That's hard. We haven't done that yet. We're working on it. But as a, for a simple analogy, you imagine a sound, an, uh, an hourglass and full of sand, and you turn it up, and the sand is pouring down, sand is pouring down. And what we did was measure the sand at the bottom of that hourglass. And it was 30 times more sand there than we our previous estimates. But you just asked the question, how much time do we have left? Well, that, I need to know how much sand is in the top. And that's what we haven't done yet. We haven't calculated how much sand is in the top of the hourglass, or how much time is left. Um, but I, I should say that the sun will engulf the, the earth probably in about five billion years when the sun becomes a, a red giant. And the heat death of the universe is many, many multiples of that five billion years. So if you are so concerned about the present and the near future that you couldn't care less about the five billion year death of the earth, then you should be less interested in the ultimate fate of the universe, which is much further down the line. But it is interesting. What what would actually happen when we hit maximum entropy? You don't what hit do we... it. You approach it asymptotically. I mean, does a coffee cup hit equilibrium when it's sitting on the table? Okay. No, it just cools down slowly, slowly, slowly. <laughs> and finally, it, it's the same, it gets closer and closer to the same temperature. It's a very slow process. So you don't hit at maximum entropy. You kind of glide slowly <laughs> into it. So as we're kind of nearing slowly, what what's, will be going on in the universe? We won't, we probably won't be here to experience it. Well, the same thing has been going on now, and that is that you'll have hydrogen turning into helium, turning into everything. For example, the compact form of energy is hydrogen, because when you put hydrogens together, you can make helium. That's what stars are doing now, and that's why the sun is shining. But like any fuel, it runs out with time, and the universe at the Big Bang was born with a certain amount of hydrogen and not more. You can't recycle things to become hydrogen and burn it again. That's a, that's a, would be a pet, perpetual motion machine and that's what the second law says you cannot have. So uh, uh, the same types of things will be going on then as they're going on now, but they'll be going on much uh, much lower rate. For example, when you first have a coffee cup, oh, it's hot, and the molecules around are going, and they're getting excited when they touch the touch the the coffee. But gradually, the temperature difference is so small that they just get heated up a little bit and then just go on their merry way. The same thing, the stars will burn out, and slowly there'll be white dwarfs which slowly cool down over billions of years. So slow cooling, I think, is the answer to the question. Okay. So the ultimate fate of the universe then is flat and uninteresting, that everything's dispersed, and what most sorts of matter will decay into something more fundamental? Is that kind of well, what's happening? One, one thing, one other mistake that some people have made is that uh, what your comments reminded me of uh, black holes. Now, some people think, oh, black holes are the end state. Well, Hawking taught us that black holes evaporate. And if black holes are small enough, then their temperature is larger than the temperature of the universe. Now, let me back up a little bit. The temperature of the universe is given by the cosmic microwave background radiation. Right now it's 2.725 degrees Kelvin. That was measured by the COBE fire ass instrument in 1990. And as the universe expands, it this radiation gets stretched and cooled. Um, and so the temperature of the universe is going down with time. For example, if it's 2.7 degrees now, in let's say 5 billion years, it'll be 2.2. I haven't done the calculation, but let's just say that's about right. Now, if but we also know that the universe is accelerating. And because it's accelerating, the universe is cooling down even more, faster and faster and faster. On the other hand, there's a limit to how much the universe can cool down because of what's called the cosmic event horizon. Now, because the universe is accelerating, there's an event horizon that gives off energy. It's called de Sitter radiation. And there's a temperature beyond which you will not sink. So it's something like 10 to the minus 34 Kelvin or something. So the universe is much, much hotter than that now. But in, I don't know, I don't know, let me take a guess, 100 billion years or so, the temperature will approach the de Sitter temperature. And then, if you have black holes that are warmer than that, 
the black holes will uh, evaporate and turn into photons, and photons distributed around the universe. And when you have photons distributed around the universe, that's the maximum equilibrium state. That's the maximum entropy state. Uh, you won't be able to get any energy out of it. Uh, but I should say that it doesn't matter what, that it doesn't have to be cool. For example, if you take the whole universe and fill it full of gamma rays, and it's really, 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 really hot, but everything's the same temperature, that also is a heat death, because there are no temperature differences. Uh, the Big Bang sounds a little like that, but it wasn't at high entropy, it was at low entropy, and that's because there were pieces of matter that were also distributed. That reminds me of something you talked to me a long, a long time ago about life, and we were talking about what is life, and you described it as something um, quite unusual as one theory could be that life is simply something out of equilibrium or in something that's continuing as uh, um, something out of equilibrium. Far from equilibrium yeah. dissipative system, yes. That's right. That's a, that's a generic term for the We, life forms traditional life forms and the sun and whirlpools and hurricanes, convection cells, any structure that is maintained by a flow of energy that, that uh, decreases the gradient upon which it feeds, uh, that's what we do. We've, there's a chemical gradient, we go in there and then we use that energy and we maintain, use that energy to maintain low entropy inside our bodies and then expel high entropy. It's the same thing of a hurricane does as well. It takes pressure differences and humidity differences and then equalizes them and the equalization process is the whirlpool that we see. Convection cells, the same thing. There's a temperature difference, hotter below, hot, hot, uh, cooler above, and those temperature differences are driving this convection cell to go like this. It's an incredible organized flow of material and it will stay that way as long as there's a temperature difference. On the other hand, the whole function of the convection cell is to undo that temperature difference, to equalize the pressure. And left to itself, without resupplying a temperature difference, you will get an, uh, the temperatures equal. So that, those are examples of far from equilibrium, dissipative structures. They're dissipative in the sense that they are undoing the gradient that, is, that has produced them. Well, that might be a good point uh, at which to uh, break to a track, and we'll come back, and we're going to talk about life a bit more here on Fuzzy Logic with me, Rod, Nisa, and special guest, Charlie Ironweaver on Community Radio 2XX. This is Run On By Moby. And you're listening to Fuzzy Logic Community Radio here on uh, Fuzzy Logic. Where else would we be? Uh, now, uh, dear listener, um, the Rod, Charlie and uh, Nisa that you're listening to have actually gone off to another universe and they're drinking beer. But uh, they've left us behind and we've taken their place. Uh, the good news for us though, is we're going to be drinking beer later on. But let's talk about life for a bit now. Um, Charlie... Yes, actually, you've got a few words for us. Uh, we're going to do a little promo for Fuzzy Logic. Take it away, Charlie. Hi, I'm Charlie Lineweaver, and you're listening to Community Radio 2XX. But how are we doing that? Our signal is speeding across the ether at the speed of light. Only, there is no ether. And the sound is rattling around your ears, buzzing through your neurons. You're a vast assembly of protons, atoms, quarks, Quantum weirdness, that's what you are. The universe is a strange place, stranger than you imagine, stranger than you can imagine. I'm Charlie Lineweaver, and I recommend you tune in to Fuzzy Logic on Sundays at 11.30 a.m. on 2XX. Thank you. Now, that's an instruction from our special guest. Uh, now, we're going to talk about life. And, Charlie, we talked about what life actually is. Um, how far can you stretch that definition? I mean, like if you found, I mean, what's that book by, uh, was it Hoyle, uh, about the dark cloud? Was that Hoyle? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, is that sort of thing possible? I mean, at what point do you say, is like a virus alive? Is a hurricane alive? Is a virus in our computer alive? Well, um, uh, you've hit it on a very uh, good point. And so what is life? Do we know what life is? And... Um, 
Well, we certainly know what life... Well, I, I was going to say, we certainly know what life here on Earth is, but then again, we don't, because you asked the question, is a virus alive? And if you go to a university department, biology department, and ask that question, about half of them will say, with some certainty, no, viruses are not alive. And the other, maybe a third, will say, well, we're not sure about that. And some will, and the rest will say, yes, viruses are definitely alive. So there's no agreement on that, which should tip us off to, to the idea that we're not quite sure what life is. And, uh, and I've written uh, a couple of papers to, trying to describe a more generic version of life, uh, that's something that uh, Ilya Prigozhin started talking about, I don't know, 30 years or more ago, and that was that there's a set of... We, we physicists sometimes like to tread on the toes of biologists, and we try to make a, a physics definition, a f more fundamental definition of what life forms are, and uh, one of them is life is our life systems or things that are alive are far from equilibrium dissipative systems um, now what is a far from equilibrium dissipative system well if you're in a room and it's all the same temperature then there's nothing then it's an equilibrium if you have a coffee cup that's cooling down well that's not far from equilibrium or rather it's a it's a system that just goes into equilibrium very quickly it's not very dissipative Dissipative systems are structures like people or plants or hurricanes or convection cells that maintain, or dust devils, for example, um, that uh, are fed by energy differences, temperature differences, pressure differences, humidity differences, any type of difference. We call that a gradient. And when these gradients are there and they're large enough, then they produce structures whose function seems to be, whose purpose is to undo the gradient. And uh, that's one way to describe life forms. And if that's the case, then hurricanes are alive, convection cells are alive, and we're alive. We just happen to have DNA inside of our bodies so that we can evolve in a way that so, hurricanes don't seem to be able to do. So would I be right to summarize you if I said that life forms harness energy from the environment in some way, like they draw it into themselves, so they, they're going counter to the, you know, within themselves, they get counter this tendency for energy to be dispersed? No, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that because, first of all, I would say that the gradient is harnessing the life form, not vice versa. You said the life form is harnessing the energy. I did, yes. And I would say, no, there's a temperature gradient in the universe, and that temperature gradient creates the life form because the second law says you have to undo. Something has to undo that uh, gradient, and so the gradient harnesses the life form to undo itself is the way I would oh, suggest. Oh, the ego me doesn't like that at all. I don't I like know the that. fact That's why that I said it. The suggestion that I am merely the tool of some unthinking physical force. <laughs> it's called the second law. I, I enjoy thinking that way and I enjoy undermining your egotism. <laughs> How do people respond to that when you tell them that? Do you often get negative responses and reactions? Well, yes, because people want to believe that they're the center of the world and that they are harnessing energy and I think it's just the other way around. And that, that that puts that undermines your self of importance, sense of self importance. Because it can be quite controversial. I've noticed when I write stories about it in the paper, those are the kinds of stories I get responses from. Well, well think to... about think about this. You know, you, you say uh, a chicken is an egg's way of making another egg. Right now, usually we say an egg is a chicken's way of making another chicken, right? So we put the active agent on the chicken, the egg is the passive thing that's produced, and then it produces another chicken, which is the active thing. But if you say a chicken is an egg's way of making another egg, then the egg becomes the active thing, the chicken becomes the passive, and the egg is produced. So notice how just those, those two sentences show an incredible difference about what you think is important and what isn't. So what you are used to doing is, hey, an egg is a chicken's way. A chicken has the motivation. A chicken has the will. A chicken has the freedom. A chicken is the activate. <laughs> but I think it's equally likely that it's the egg who's doing that. I mean, that, that in some sense is the message of Dawkins' book, The Selfish Gene, in 1976. He published that. In, the, in other words, we are a gene's way of making another gene. And we don't like to hear that at all. <laughs> but I think there's a lot of truth to that, and so we should take it seriously. And when we think about these definitions of life, some of us might think, oh, what's the point of thinking exactly what is life? What's the point of defining it right down to these terrible details? But the problem is uh, when we're looking out of space at what where life exists or does life exist, 
exist out of space. We need to know what life is in the first place, don't well, we? It would be nice. I mean, my my PhD student recently gave me a T-shirt that says, uh, "What exactly is life? The search is on." And I said, "Oh no, Addy, take the exactly out of there because uh, I guess I." And sometimes in science, when you ask a question, you can either find the answer to the question, as you've defined it, or the answers make the question go away. They undermine the assumptions that went into it. So when you say, what exactly is life, you're assuming that it has an exact definition. So I'm one of the, I guess, few people who think that life does not have an exact definition, and it's kind of silly to look for one. As a matter of fact, the more... Do you, the more fervor with which you look for an exact definition, it kind of escapes. It's kind of like happiness. What's the definition of happiness? And the more you look for it, the more further happiness goes away. But if you just say, oh, happiness is a little like this, a little like this, well, then it sits there like a butterfly on your shoulder and you have it. So I suspect that life isn't something that can be rigorously defined. So when we finally come across aliens in an out-of-space planet that we haven't found yet... How do we know? How do we know that they're alive? Well, I think we already have come across aliens. I've written an article saying we have detected extraterrestrials, but they would be only in the sense of this broader physics-based definition of life called far from equilibrium uh, dissipative systems. So, for example, we have seen dust devils on Mars. For example, those are alien life forms. But people say, "Oh, that's a semantic kind of." changing of the rules. I said, well, that's what I think is necessary because the rules are not set. The, 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 I think we have an inertia and a tradition and a myopia about what life is based on what we like about ourselves, but that doesn't mean that those uh, that same myopia, the well, universe I, has to I, share I think that. we're all actually looking for other life forms that we can sit down and put on and drink a beer with or <laughs> put onto a hamburger and eat. Yes, I but, hope they speak English. If they speak Portuguese, <laughs> for example, that would be terrible for us, wouldn't it? <laughs> so when, when we do detect the signature now, now do, do you think it'll be an infuriating thing because we'll get the spectroscopic analysis from another one of those planets we've discovered on a, another star system and we'll see the presence of oxygen or methane or something that tends to imply that there's some life form possibly going on. And I'm assuming here a carbon-based life form, which I guess you're going to disagree with. No, no, no. no? Carbon is, is about uh, 20 times more abundant than silicon in the universe. So if the relative probability of forming life out of carbon or out of silicon is equal, then there still would be 20 times more carbon-based life forms than silicon-based life forms. Okay, so, but do you think it's going to be an infuriating scenario where you get these little telltale signatures, but you can't go down there and look at it? All you can do is get some kind of very abstract measurements out of a uh, t- telescope. I mean, when it, when it happens, what are we going to do? We're going to look at this and go, well, there seems to be a lot of green in there. Um, that probably means photosynthesis as we understand it. Well, as I've already said, I think it already has happened. I, I'm, this is not a joke when I say that I think we've already detected extraterrestrial uh, life forms. I really believe that we need to broaden our definition of life, and if we do, we have already detected life. Uh, so it's, it, think of the following example. Think of somebody who speaks English, and they maybe know French and Spanish. And so what they do is they go... They want to go to China, and they want to see if Chinese speak a language. And so they compare what they're hearing to English and French and Spanish. They say, you know what? There's no language here. People do not speak a language. But you and I know, hey, they speak a language called Chinese. It's just not closely related to French, English, or Spanish. So the the point is, is not to have a definition that is so narrow that you can exclude uh, other things that are that the universe has produced that might be useful to understand as another language. Uh, And that's what I think the the philosophy behind, the motivation behind this far from equilibrium dissipative systems Uh, is. There is actually a really good short story that I read once, which uh, uh, an alien probe comes down, lands in the back street of New York, and it looks like a big garbage bin. And the locals take to it with crowbars and prize this thing apart. And meanwhile, the aliens are watching through their monitors and they say, oh, there's definitely no life on Earth because they can't see anything that makes any sense to them. Now, can we talk a little bit about the uh, origin of life? Uh, now, there's a bit of a discussion I was reading uh, to do with whether it comes from the primordial soup, all the stuff where the, the Stanley Miller did with his experiment. He put the glass vials and he, and he sparked a mix of methane and other stuff and saw stuff coming out of it. 
And then there's another school of thought that says it comes from black smokers, from the uh, sulphur vents in the deep oceans. Do you have a, a take on... And I'm taking the more ma- narrow definition of life, if you pardon me for that. Mm-hmm. Well, I won't, but I'll, I'll play the game. <laughs> human. <laughs> oh, human, yes. Uh, yes you, okay, so you're asking you, me, do I have a favourite scenario or a place of origin for life on that, Earth? Yes. Okay, well, what, here's what we know about the origin of life. Um, we think that life on Earth is older than about 3.6, maybe 3.8, maybe it even started about 4.2. The latest genetic evidence of a of a molecular clocks puts the date at about 4.2. That seems to be consistent with the decrease of the bombardment. You know, the Earth uh, and the early solar system was an incredible bombardment rate. If, matter of fact, last night or tonight, you go look at the moon, you see the big holes in it, and big man in the moon or the rabbit, that was produced about 3.8, 3.9 billion years ago. So there was, a, earlier than that, there was a much heavier bombardment. So those bombardments, I mean, if you get if the Earth gets hit by an object that's about 500 kilometers in diameter, that will essentially boil all the oceans and make the whole surface so hot that there could not be any life forms. So in the earliest uh, epoch of the Earth, uh, there could not have been life. So that gives a time frame for life, oh, about 4 billion years, roughly. So then you say, well, what is life? Well, I used to think that life started out as single cells, but the more I under, the more I do research and, and more I listen to people who have researched this, the more I think that it was not single cells, but rather a colony of things that weren't quite cells. They weren't quite a colony. They were a bunch, of, a group of molecules that were together that didn't have rigid boundaries around them, and they could exchange DNA and exchange proteins with each other more readily than we can now. So, another way to say that is that if you look at the phylogenetic trees, yeah, the lines, they go back, and then instead of converging on one species, they converge on a, a larger group that so was a, more uh, it's promiscuous. It's a sort of a chemical symbiosis you're describing, right? Yeah, a bacterial mat some people have studied. Uh, and uh, Carl Woese is one of my heroes on this, W-O-E-S-E, and his papers are very illuminating. And he talks about horizontal gene transfer. Right now, for example, you can't have sex with a tree out there, right, because you're a different species. But if you go back far enough, you can see bacteria, for example, exchanging pieces of DNA with each other. So it's kind of like we're exchanging words. They were exchanging uh, DNA. And I think as you go back earlier to the origin of life, there was a lot more of that going on, and so there weren't well-defined species or races or groups of anything that was all kind of mixed up, and that mixture gradually differentiated into different groups and species. Now, are you at the school, just to change the subject subtly, um, where religion and science can't really cross each other's boundaries, that there is a domain of science and there's a domain of religion? No, I'm not. Um, A lot of my colleagues are, a lot of my more authoritative colleagues are people who think that, you know, science talks about the way the world goes and religion talks about the way heaven goes or or how to go to heaven. And uh, uh, so that view was made most famous by Stephen Jay Gould, and he Mm -hmm. called it non-overlapping magisteria that is science talks describes the world and religion tells how the world should be and he thought that those uh, two magisteria those two domains were separate and therefore science and religion could get along and I am of the exact opposite view and that is that uh, science and religion overlap incredibly and that I think that our moral values, in other words, our sense of how the world should be, can be understood as a result of the evolution of our bodies and brains. In other words, any moral value you have, like, oh, I think my children are worth more than that that other person's children, is because of the genetic preference for your own genes over somebody else's genes. And the fact that when we have species going extinct, we're concerned about vertebrates going extinct, but if there are any, you know, invertebrates going extinct, we don't care that much. And if they're bacteria, you know, who cares? You know, so we have a morality which is, I think, highly correlated with how closely the other life forms are to our to us. Um, 
it's uh, approximate at least anyway. So, so for example, you know, it's easy to kill a mosquito or a fly, but it's harder to kill a dog and it's harder to kill a chimpanzee. It's even harder to kill another human being, but it's even harder to kill yourself or your own family. So we have a sliding rule of how important the other living beings are around us. And that is, seems to be, uh, and not seems to be, I think it is strongly correlated with how genetically related they are to us. So is science more than just filling in the gaps of religion with the bits that we can't explain through biblical stories or whatever? Well, science is trying to figure out the origin of the universe, and science is trying to figure out the origin of life. Science is trying to figure out the origin of people, uh, human beings. These are all uh, questions that are traditionally answered by religions of the world, but science is another way of going about it. We have lots and lots of holes in our scientific theories and scientific ideas about how these things happen, but for me, that's the only way to go. I've been to too many countries, seen too many different religions and too many, I don't know, religions that have turned into mythologies because no one believed them anymore. To, to think that any one religion has a monopoly on you, the way to understand these questions. Do you questions. see the need to posit a, an external entity to have created the universe to begin with? I don't, because then you run into the problem that Richard Dawkins and many others have pointed out, and that if you posit the existence of an external entity, entities, then you can say, well, where did that entity come from? It just doesn't make sense. You just move the problem one step yes, higher. Yes, yes, well, that seems scientifically, that's right. Well, we might play a quick track here on Fuzzy Logic. Your guest today is Charlie Lineweaver. I'm Rod, and in the studio, fellow Cosmo. Cosmo, <laughs> just for this morning, just, or just for, for this, this one hour. <laughs> just for one hour. Lisa, pressing all the buttons as required. This is Under Pressure by Queen. We've got to fade Queen out there because we have too much to talk about here on Fuzzy Logic with Charlie Lineweaver, Nisa and myself, Rod. Now, earlier, Charlie, I had a cute little story about us going down to the pub while uh, invaders from another a parallel part of the multiverse uh, took over the show. I wasn't entirely flippant when I said that. Now, I wanted to ask you whether this thing about multiverses, parallel universes or concurrent universes, maybe you describe it, is that just some kind of uh, a, a trick that uh, physicists have used, like accountants do sometimes, to explain the fact that we can't quite cover all the phenomena we're seeing? I, I mean, is there really a place where we have a different studio with a different Rod and a different Charlie and Nisa having a conversation, or is it a bit more subtle than that? Well, if you want to talk about multiverses, you should probably start out by talking about what is our universe. And most people have such a tenuous view of what that is, such an inaccurate view, that I like to start off by telling them what the universe is and what. And I guess the and so one thing you need to know is that the universe looks like it's about 13.7 billion years, so it has a finite age. Light has a finite speed, therefore light can have only traveled a finite distance in that 13.7 billion years. So we are at the center of an observable universe which has an edge to it. Now usually you're thinking, okay, I'm thinking of a sphere. The problem with thinking of it that way is because when you look back, the, the light that's coming from far away also started out a long time ago. So as you look back in time, you're looking back, it looked back in space, you're looking back in time. So a telescope is a time machine. So this observable universe around us is not just in space, it's kind of like a, we like to think of it as a space-time light cone. In any case, we are looking at part of the universe. We have measurements that look like the universe is spatially infinite, and so it looks like our universe is spatially infinite, although we can only see a finite piece of it but with a radius of about 46 gigalight years. Um, so now that's that's the observable universe. The entire universe may be infinite. Now you ask the question about uh, uh, a uh, multiverse. Well, physicists study things called laws. We have the law of gravity, and we have the four forces, and maybe in the early universe they were united. And there are things that, when we study the early universe, we talk about symmetry-breaking events. So, for example, 
a symmetry breaking event is when these forces come apart for example gravity split off from the other three uh, other three forces and then you have a grand unified theory and we have symmetry breaking events things that we don't really understand but we i have asked people in this field now could the universe have turned out a different way if we started the universe again could the symmetry have been broken in a different way such that we would have, I don't know, four spatial dimensions instead of three? Or could gravity have been a little bit stronger or weaker, etc.? Could the universe have turned out differently in a very fundamental way? And the answer is sometimes yes, sometimes no. We're not sure about this. And But if it could have turned out slightly differently, and it, it's consistent with our idea and our knowledge that it could have, then in another observable universe that's part of our entire universe, but it's separate from our observable one. In other words, the entire universe is infinite. We have an observable universe right here, another observable universe right here, another observable universe right here. They're all spatially separate from each other. If they're spatially separate, they're not causally connected. And if they're not causally connected, they could have broken the symmetry in a different way. So over here, gravity could be stronger. Over here, gravity could be weaker. Over here, the speed of light could be different. Over here, the vacuum energy could be different. So if those possibilities exist, then in our entire universe, it's essentially equivalent to a multiverse. These are parts of the entire universe that we don't know about and can never observe. This is inherently unknowable and inherently unprovable? No, I wouldn't say that at all, because when we're... Um, well, I just said that we had data saying that the universe was spatially infinite. But I also said, hey, wait a minute, we only have a finite piece of it called the observable universe. How in the world can we take data in our observable universe and make can say anything about the entire universe? Hmm. Right? Well, the usual quick answer to that, given by cosmologists, is, well, we have no reason to believe we're in the center of it. And so, therefore, it goes. It's, we just assume that it's, it's like inside of our observable universe out there. That's the quick answer. Uh, another answer is the following. Imagine that you're on in the ocean, Pacific Ocean, and you're in a boat, and there are waves that are coming by, and um, you can see waves that are longer than your horizon, um, or, or rather, we, we let me use a little bit of jargon. We call we talk about power spectra of the cosmic microwave background radiation. Uh, that's simply, there's so much power on this scale, so much power on this scale, so much power on this scale. This is what we measure. Now, to believe that there is no power on, it seems that there is power on all scales, and we have as, as this exponent, which it, it makes a curve like this. It, it just curve goes down like a diagonal on a plot. And here's where our universe stops, and we extrapolate beyond that, because we see this power law over our entire observable universe, and there's, it would be crazy to think that that power law stopped just because the universe is 13.7 billion years old. So if I can take your middle of the Pacific analogy, yes, yes. and I'm sitting in my little boat, and yes. I'm up rocking up and down on these waves, I yes. see the waves extending off into the distance, and you're saying, I have good reason to believe those waves extend beyond my sight, even though I can never actually reach them. It's not right? It's not that. It's the it's the size of the waves. If you have little waves that go, they're about, let's say, a, a meter long. You have 10 meter long waves. You have a you, know, you have a thousand meter long waves, and you have waves as long as the until you can see the horizon. But you can also, but that. Knowing all those waves are there lets you plot them in a power spectrum, and you right. to pretend that that power spectrum stops immediately at the horizon would be crazy, because you know the horizon is kind of an arbitrary thing, and that if you were 10,000 miles in that direction, you would be measuring the same, you'd have an observable universe, but you would be measuring the same power spectrum. So, uh, I don't know, I, I could give other examples but uh, yeah, as yeah. I said the probably the the well here's one inflation you've heard of inflation right yes. inflation is the only way we have of explaining the source of structure in our universe but it part of that theory is that this these we are part of a, a we are a tiny tiny part of a larger inflationary bubble now the inflationary bubble is produced by a phase transition in the early universe so it as part of this theory as part of the theory to explain structure in our universe, it necessarily has to be part of a much larger object. Okay. Now, um, now let me give you another one. 
we know that quantum cosmology, if we're going to talk about the early universe, has to be quantum cosmology. Quantum cosmology, if you know, have studied quantum mechanics a little bit, you know that it has to do with statistics. Now, in, when you're dealing with statistics, there's no such thing that says, oh, by the way, this is a unique event in this theory. There's no such thing as a unique event in quantum mechanics. Everything is a part of a distribution, a probability distribution, and our universe, if, it's, if it is to be explained in quantum cosmology, and I think it has, we have good reason to believe we need quantum cosmology to describe the early universe, then our universe is one of many. So there are about five or six different legitimate ways to, to say that the multiverse is the most consistent view we have of the entirety, and that this, oh, wait a minute, show me the truth, show me the rock, you can never know about these things, is, I think, a skepticism that is, I think, misplaced when we talk about this. I know that you seem to have the skepticism, many of my colleagues do as well, and I think that, I think the smart money is on the multiverse. Okay, I, I guess my question uh, originated from, uh, like Richard Feynman had a, a, a certain problem which he posited that particles, sub-nuclear um, particles, were going back in time. And that was how he explained the result that he was seeing. I would really find that hard to accept because I guess I'm being a human rooted in the concept that time goes in one direction. So I, I guess my question was about, was it more, and I think you've answered it really, was it more than just a, a trick to explain things that we see in the universe but can't quite get our heads around like the quantum states you know the atom or the the electron is in two states simultaneously in in one universe it's in one state and another universe it's in a different state no it's not a trick i think the trick is the thought trap that we all fall in thinking that it can only be in one state right and so now flippantly is there really another Charlie Neeson Rod in another studio? Or right. is it just that we are occupying these all together at, at once? Right, so so I wrote an article in the Canberra Times about whether the in, the universe contained an infinite number of Kevin Rudds or not. And uh, the the if the universe is spatially infinite, then there are an infinite number of stars, an infinite number of planets, an infinite number of uh, everything that has a probability of existing. So... Um, so the question is, does Kevin Rudd, or does Nisa Skilton, uh, is the probability of Kevin Rudd appearing zero or just very small? If it's very small, then there will be an infinite number of Kevin Rudds in the universe. But I argued that the probability of Kevin Rudd was zero. It was impossible. And people said, well, that's crazy. Kevin Rudd exists, therefore it's not possible. It's not impossible. And, and I was saying, well, wait a minute. Now, let's, let's talk about probabilities. If you have a dice, right? You roll the dice, you have, or a die, the probability of one is, rolling a two is one out of six. The probability of rolling any one number is one out of six, right? So that's because there's six sides. Now, if you make an infinite number of sides and you roll the dice, the probability of any one side is zero. So, or think of a lottery. You have a big basket of numbers and you have an infinite number of, no, infinite number in that then you pick out one, the probability of getting it is zero, but there it is. Is it really zero or just approaching zero? If the, well, one divided by infinity, what is that? Uh, I can't imagine it. Well, I would call it zero. zero. I would call it zero. One divided by, in my book, now that, as, if you ask a mathematician, they'll say, mm -hmm. well, that's not right, it's undefined or something. <laughs> and I would say, no, as a physicist, I'm practical for a person, so one divided by infinity is, is zero for me. Or, let's say this, the limit of 1 on n as n goes to infinity is 0. That was what I think a mathematician would say. And so, uh, so how do you explain us sitting here right now? Are we not really here? Well, you put your hand in the bowl and one number has to come out. And here we are. <laughs> <laughs> and, and hopefully in one of those universes I did press all the correct buttons on the console. And being a life form... Uh, let's go back to the question of life, because Nisa, you still had a question. You oh, this is where it was. This is what our, the possibility of us existing was. And I think you've answered it for me there. Um, how possible are we that we exist? And it is, well, f from your theory, it is impossible. Well, this is in a, a revered field of science called quirkometry. And uh, the question is, how quirky is something? And so, But I did have a, a friend who was looking for... a Portuguese-speaking aliens. And I said, oh, the prob what's the probability of a Portuguese-speaking alien? And I, I said it was zero. And other people say, no, no, it's, it's just very small. Well, I, I would argue that it is zero. 
Well, will those aliens have star signs? I've been asked, a listener's asked me if I can ask you, Chris, about astrology. <laughs> okay, let's skip that one. <laughs> uh, yeah. my, my daughter asked me about that. She was had a, she had a, I guess, a jewel. She was had a necklace and she was holding a, a piece of stone down here and she was saying, Dad, look at this, look at this. Said, what dress should I wear, the red one or the blue one? And she would move it one direction. Say, oh, see, the stone is telling me the blue. I said, like, get out of here. <laughs> but for some reason, she was, uh, it was fun, and she was investing too much of her time in that for me. I said, I'm a scientist. Get that out of here. <laughs> oh, by the way, uh, Charlie, I've got to tell you about my own invention of queercometry, and that is a thing I call the gazillioplex, which is the largest number you can think of, plus one. Oh, and plus two? Oh, that's that's a gazillioplex two, <laughs> which is probably a good time in which to, uh, to to wrap up and say thank you very much for coming and joining us on our little science show on Fuzzy mm-hmm. Logic, Charlie Lineweaver. It's been a pleasure to have you. Mm-hmm. Thanks very much. And Nisa, an hour on the show with you is always thank well you spent. Again. Yes, thank I you very myself. much. And uh, come back next Sunday on uh, Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. And this is podcast two on Fuzzy Logic on 2XX.podbean.com. And my name is Rod, signing off until then. Bye. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now.